Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. The Seattle Times yesterday had a very interesting column in the March 7th edition, Sunday edition, and that is um, Seattle's area's five most changed neighborhoods of the decade. I'm not going to go in great detail in the column, but there were some highlights of it that I found really quite interesting. And this is taken from Gene Balk, FYI guy. But uh, we all know that Seattle was growing very quickly from 2010 through 2020. Matter of fact, Seattle was the fastest growing city through much of the decade. Now that has shifted. And if you want to read another Seattle Times column yesterday by Danny Westney, he describes some of the reasons why. But let's just get to the, uh, what Gene Balk had to say. First of all, diversity. King County started out the decade less racially diverse than the U.S. as a whole, but ended the decade a little more diverse. No place in King County had a more dramatic increase in diversity since 2010 than West Bellevue, a residential area south of downtown. 75% of the residents in that area were white in 2010. By the end of the decade, that number had dropped to 38%. Seattle has been called one of the most gentrified cities in the last decade. Very true. But nowhere in the city of Seattle is more gentrified, and probably a lot of people would be thinking Capitol Hill right now, but actually North Beacon Hill. In 2010, census data shows that the median home value was about $300,000. In 2020, it's about $600,000, roughly doubled. Millennials. While nearly all of the nation was growing older, the median age in King County declined largely because of the millennial influx. And uh, I think we know why Amazon and many other high-tech companies. And speaking of that, that's around the Westlake neighborhood in Seattle, which runs along the west side of Lake Union, had the biggest increase in the percentage of young adults. In 2010, 36% of the area's residents were between the ages of 25 and 34. That has shot up to 52%. This one, to me, is pretty stunning. In 2019, for the first time in about 100 years, 100 years, Seattle became a renter-majority city. And cars. We all know Seattle has way too many cars, but that seems to be leveling off. As a matter of fact, in the heart of Seattle's Capitol Hill, the number of cars declined by 31%. Good trend in that direction. So again, I would suggest you read the entire article. And uh, again, it was in the March 7th edition of the Sunday Seattle Times, and it's under FYI guy Gene Balk. Now let's transition to the two guests I have on today's show. Former National Park Ranger John Waterman will be joining us today from one of Utah's national parks. We'll talk about the history of the national parks, the most accessible parks, his favorite parks, and why more people are visiting the national parks like never before. John partnered with National Geographic and authored a book. Actually, it's more of an atlas of the 61 national parks in the United States which includes over 200 historical national park maps. But first, former King 5 news reporter Julie Blacklow coming up in just a moment. 
Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Emmy Award-winning Julie Blacklow and former journalist for King 5 Television from the early 1970s to the late 1990s is my guest. She went on to produce stories for national networks after that. I remember Julie very well from the King 5 days, and uh, I saw that she wrote a column on Marketing Northwest. It piqued my interest, so I followed up and had a discussion with Julie a short time ago. I asked Julie first, what brought her to Seattle, and how did she end up at King 5? Well, I was brought here by my then-husband, uh, Richard Blacklow, uh, who took a job clerking for a judge. Uh, we were both from Washington, D.C., but he had just graduated law school and wanted to get as far away from his parents as he could. So he got a job in Seattle, and we migrated here and knew no one. And then um, one day, we went to a Dartmouth alumni reunion. Uh, that's where Richard had graduated from. And I met a young reporter uh, named John Lipman, who was working at King. He was all of about 26 years old, and I was 23. John gave me the name of the news director. I called and made an appointment. I had no experience, even though I'd gone to one of the greatest journalism schools in the country, Northwestern. I never took a J school course. So I knocked. I really just knocked on the door and uh, went into his office and sold myself and, and just said, you know, I, he was shocked that I had no experience, but I was a young woman uh, in the right place at the right time. And I told him I had great curiosity about everything. And I thought that was the best, the very best trait that any journalist could have. And I had learned how to write at Northwestern. What stories do you consider your biggest stories that maybe had the impact on the community you hoped it would or along those lines? Is there any stories that you remember that really jump out? One was about the kidnapping and mutilation of a young boy um, in Tacoma. And this was done by a sex offender. He should never have been allowed out on the streets again. And anyway, to make a long story short, I covered the trial and interviewed the mother it was a harrowing story, and it very much upset uh, the whole state and the nation. It became a national story, too. Anyway, the end result was that as a result of this crime and my reporting and working with the prosecuting attorneys in Pierce County and the legislature, Washington State became the first state in the country to make uh, almost permanent the uh, incarceration of level three sex offenders, which this guy was. After that, Washington State passed that legislation. It subsequently became legislation in all 50 states. That, that was one story that had a national impact. The other was a story about a 22-year-old man who killed and raped an eight-year-old child in Seattle on Capitol Hill. I covered that trial too, although I became obsessed with finding out why. How could this happen? So we traced this young man's life from birth 
until he was uh, found guilty of her murder. The story ended up airing on the Today Show nationally. And that was an amazing experience. But as a result of that broadcast, NBC received many letters from parents who had seen the story and decided they recognized their own children in Michael Green. I realized then that the power of journalism. And you were really reporting the backdrop Seattle stories from, again, the early 70s till about 2000. And that was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a time of tremendous change in the city because I came to Seattle in the 60s, and that, to me, was just an amazing time. I mean, uh, the growth, you know, Microsoft in the mid-70s, then uh, Major League Baseball came back, the Seahawks came into existence, and, and so on. Did you have that feeling then about the city of Seattle and, and it was really hitting its stride at that time? Absolutely. I agree with you. I saw it as a small town when I first got here because I'd grown up in Washington, D.C. and New York. But Seattle seemed to me a real, a real jewel as it started to grow. And I was happy to be part of the reporting profession so I could observe it. And, I, you know, there are a lot more. I mean, Nintendo, Starbucks, um, Eddie Bauer. You know, I, I covered all of those stories. I interviewed all the Nordstrom brothers. To see what's happening now is heartbreaking. And I know I'd be reporting what's happening now quite differently than what I'm seeing. Okay, let's get to that. It's been a complete breakdown in government. There seems to be a complete severance of those connections. In the 70s and 80s, when I did cover City Hall and I knew all of the council people and the county council people too, there were disagreements, but the focus was never lost on what the people needed or wanted or were demanding in more extreme cases. I remember the days of the city council, the the Sam Smith, the Jeanette Williams, Phyllis Lanthier, the mayors, the various mayors I knew, Norm Rice, Charlie Royer, um, Wes Allman, going back into the 70s. They were respectful. They all listened. This current council, uh, and uh, watching what's happened to the utter neglect of dealing with the homeless population and the causes, no one seems to be taking action. To see a mayor like Jenny Durkin, whom I know, and a police chief by Carmen Best, whom I know, leave, resign, is a real warning sign. And that tells me that the city council is dysfunctional. And to see these homeless encampments uh, rising up and taking over city parks, you have this ultimate clash between residents who have needs and should be respected and the homeless population who have needs and need to be heard also. I hear about millions being spent on homelessness, but I don't see any change. And I know that's the cry of many of my Seattle friends who do not understand. Now, I don't know if it's a function of age or a lack of experience, 
I'm all for young people getting involved. So I know the average age of the council is much younger than it used to be in the 70s and 80s. But that's not the issue. Many young people have the ability to listen. And I just get the sense from what my friends are saying and what I'm seeing that their inaction is causing a shocking degradation of this city. I was concerned when I saw the police uh, leave the East Precinct, that was wrong. That was not smart. Well, you know, it's really great to get your perspective because, again, you were covering, doing the beat during the time of what I saw, the great growth and just the optimism of the city. We certainly had our problems, but we had a series of really good mayors And uh, as you mentioned, it it just seemed to me that there was this community spirit. I just got finished uh, reading Norm Rice's book about community. It's a great book, by the way. But he Mm -hmm. said in the book, it's so important to listen, to hear what people are saying. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've looked back at Norm Rice, and when he was elected, we had the city was, was very divided because of school busing. And Doug Jewett was running against him, was for busing, um, and Norm was against doing away with busing. But he also said this is not the issue per se. We need to focus on the schools. But I think it just goes to leadership and how the city was at that place in time. They ended up voting um, to end school busing very close, like 51 to 49%. But Norm Rice won the election 57 to 43%. Mm-hmm. People could distinguish mm-hmm. between leadership and trust in the individual. And I think Norm, more than anybody, as far as looking back at a mayor, was able to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Uh, he was, look, it was a series of great mayors, just one after the other. You read all the time about the businesses crying out for police protection. And, and then you hear this ridiculous defund the police. One comment when you talk about, let's say, Jenny Durkin, the mayor, and then Carmen Best, the police chief, here's like something you, again, head scratch, that you hear from the city council all the time about, you know, women of color and minorities being promoted and everything. And what's the first thing they do? Cut Carmen Best's salary by forty or $50,000 a year. You go, yeah. what? There's so many wrong moves. Can you imagine being one of the Nordstrom's currently running the company, seeing your $70,000 display windows destroyed and not having a unified council. Down on the street with their masks on, standing all nine of them with the mayor saying, this will not be tolerated. We're going to find these people. We've got cameras and you can run, but you can't hide. I'd pay a lot to be a witness to that press conference. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, Julie, this is wonderful. Um, Before I go, um, I want to talk uh, about your book, Fearless, Book Diary of a Badass Reporter. It is uh, a memoir of uh, growing up, uh, how coming into a profession I never planned on, surviving incredible uh, obstacles. Uh, No one's life by the time they're in their 70s as I am gets by, you know, without any suffering. I've had my share. I've had more of a share of good things happen. And so it's a story 
of a life and a story of survival, surmounting things I never thought I'd have to deal with. Two-thirds of the book deals with a life in television news and the stories I covered, the good, bad, and ugly, and the very funny. It's a whole life's journey. And uh, looking back on it, which is what happens after you write a memoir, I think you go, how in the world did I survive all that? But I did. My thanks to Julie Blacklow, journalist and author of a book called Fearless, Diary of a Badass Reporter. You can order the book by emailing Julie at Julie, J-U-L-I-E, Blacklow, B-L-A-C-K-L-O-W, Com. That's julieblacklow.com. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit voicesofexperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's voicesofexperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit voicesofexperience.com. All one word. Former National Park Ranger John Waterman is my guest. John partnered up with National Geographic and authored a book, well, more appropriately described as an atlas of the 61 national parks in the United States. Over 200 historical national park maps are included in this book. We'll talk about the history of the national park system, the most accessible parks, his favorite parks, and why more people are visiting the national parks like never before. Think about that, and John will tell you why in the course of this interview. But I first asked John, what prompted him to publish this atlas? I was a ranger in the national parks for several years, and there had the opportunity to get to know the parks even better than I had before. And since then, I've spent a lot of time in the national parks. Because I made my living as a writer and often worked for the National Geographic, they asked if I was interested in doing this atlas. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity uh, to do further deep research this time. Uh, And the, the purpose of the book is to inspire readers not only to visit, but to take care of these national treasures that are our 63 national parks. Do you think that people appreciate the parks more during this period of time of COVID? Yeah, well, it's a great time. And judging by the increasing numbers and increasing popularity, uh, COVID has has facilitated people visiting in numbers like never before. uh, Because people not only have the time, but they want to get outdoors and get away from the city streets. Where are you right now? I'm standing outside in beautiful Utah, looking at the Wasatch Mountains uh, stretching south and north. We certainly, up in the state of Washington, we have Mount Rainier National Park and Olympic National Park. Very different parks from Utah. Yeah, um, here in Utah, there are desert national parks, uh, quite different from the glaciated splendors of uh, Washington State. But uh, that therein is one of the great things about national parks, of the diversity of these places. You can go from, from underwater to the tallest mountain in North America. There are 61 national parks, correct? Yeah. There, there, 
that is correct when I wrote the book, but since I wrote the book, there were two national parks that have been added to the mix, so they're now 63. Oh, and where are they at? Uh, New River Gorge in West Virginia is the latest addition, and before that, uh, there is, uh, was a monument in New Mexico. The, the Great White Sand Dunes National Monument is now a national park. It's a remarkable white uh, gypsum sand dunes uh, and lots of uh, desert creatures as well. One thing I think we should take great pride in in this country, we've certainly had our issues of late, but one of the things that we did as a country is to develop these national parks and have great caretakers like you for them. Do you agree with that in terms of this being kind of an American type of symbol that we help the world get appreciate nature more perhaps that we took the leadership in that? Yeah, very much so. I'm glad you bring that up because the parks are a great democratic ideal in that they're open to everyone, not just American citizens, but people come from around the world. I, I don't think we should ever take them for granted. Are there national parks that you think are more accessible than others that you can say, I would go to this one, I'd go to that one. You can get the sense of the spectacular scenery, but you don't have to hike in a, a great deal to do that. Yeah, very very much so. You know, they the, the parks were created for everyone, and old and young. And it happens that many of them were created in the early 20th century, and the Organic Act passed in 1916 is what actually created the national park system. But it was at the dawn of the automobile age, so it happens that they built these magnificent roadways through many of these parks. So that I don't recommend it, but but if uh, you were infirm or older in a hurry, you wouldn't even have to get out of your car or out of the shuttle bus or out of the cruise ship. And um, but there is a, um, a, a hidden agenda to that that the parks are in fact protected by this bulwark of roads and boat access uh, that keeps the uh, millions of visitors that go to our national parks contained in one area and keeps the impact down to a minimum. For instance, Yosemite Valley, millions of people go there every year. It's one of the most popular national parks, but more than 90% of them just stay on the roadways there in Yosemite Valley. And the bulk of the national park remains unvisited. And it's there for your listeners who are feeling more adventurous to actually get off and get away from the parking lot and the asphalt uh, to explore and see these parts of the national park that uh, so few people ever see. I've got an advanced question, and I want to uh, take a guess. And it is uh, including who has the what national park has the deepest lake. I'm going to take a guess, Crater Lake. That is correct. Ding, ding, ding. All <laughs> right. One a up. free trip to Crater Lake National Park. I've never been there. I live in the state of Washington, and I always drive down Interstate 5, and I go, i got to get off the road and go to Crater Lake, and I've never done it. So since I got that right, then I, I should be more inspired. Yeah, and it's one of the bluest lakes that you'll ever see. I mean, not only is the wonder that it's 1,943 feet deep, but that it is the bluest of all blues imaginable there uh, at the top in that crater of the, an old volcano. What parks w- are your favorites? 
Denali is one of them in Alaska. Gates of the Arctic, also in Alaska, and Wrangell St. Elias, all in Alaska, because these places are remarkable landscapes with pristine wildlife populations and protected ecosystems. Uh, just vast lands and waterscapes. Um, but there are also treasures in the lower 48 and Canyonlands National Park. And Utah happens to be one of those places where you can wander into the back corners of the park and really feel like you're, you step back in time. How many national parks have you been to? Well, I'm not counting, but I've certainly been to more than half of the 63 national parks. But I return to many of them uh, repeatedly and sometimes spend um, more than a month at a time in them. So uh, uh, as you're getting the picture, I'm not one of those guys who uh, spends time in my car looking through the windows. I like to get out and explore and challenge myself and really taste the the actual landscape itself. Anything else before we go? Yes. Get out there and and, uh, use the book perhaps as inspiration, but get away from the coffee table, get away from your automobile, and get back and get into the hearts of these national parks and enjoy them. Good advice, Sean. We should get out and visit all our parks if we can. Hey, you know something? I just looked up how many national parks we have in Washington State. And uh, there are the usual ones that I got easily, and that was Mount Rainier National Park and Olympic National Park. But we have three more. One is Lake Roosevelt National Park Service. Again, I've heard of that. I have not been to that, though. But then there's a Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park. And you know where that is? That's in downtown Seattle on 2nd Avenue in a building. It celebrates the gold rush of the late 1800s. And then there's the Olympic National Forest. I guess that's separate from the Olympic National Park, something else I didn't know. So get out there and enjoy our parks this spring and summer. Again, my thanks to John Waterman. The book is called Atlas of the National Parks, published by National Geographic. And you can get that book on Amazon.com. And I'm pretty sure you can get the Atlas on many other book websites as well. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Julie Blacklow and John Waterman for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Any comments about what you heard today? Anything you would like to leave in the Voices of Experience hotline about a future show? Or again, any opinion about anything, I'll try to get it on the air. The phone number is 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. 66. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks for listening. Quote of the week. Nothing is worse than the truth told at the right time. I was talking to former Seattle mayor Norm Rice last week, and he uh, provided me that quote. Now, he said it's not his per se. He actually heard that from a former Seattle city councilman, Sam Smith. But still, I think it's a really appropriate comment for the time we live in right now because sometimes the truth does hurt. And finally, to leave you with this, experience is our best teacher.